This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. If you're a fan of NPR, listening to our podcasts and live stream has never been easier. Just search for accessmedia.nz on the App Store or Google Play and download the app with the Kiwi Fruit logo. Once you've got it, pick Manawatu People's Radio from the list of stations and go find your new favourite show. Hi and welcome to this week's show of Property Matters. I'm Greg Watson and I talk all things property here on NPR. Lovely to have your company today. I'm going a little bit off script today. Sometimes I talk about the the news and what's been happening. Lots in the news about house prices and tight markets. But I'm just going to steer away from that a bit and just talk about some of the other things that are happening locally, nationally and internationally that might be of interest. There was an article recently that says Manawatu escapes worst effects of pandemic-driven economic crunch, which is really good news. So although New Zealand may be in recession, the economic effect of the coronavirus crisis hasn't been as bad as feared in Manawatu, so it's nice to know. And the Palmer's North City Council's latest regional economic report, based on data from economics consultancy Inframetrics from the June quarter, showed Manawatu Wanganui's regional gross domestic product was $11.2 billion, just 0.9% less than a year earlier. The region was doing better than the national economy, which had a 2.1% drop in annual GDP in the year ending in June. Council Economic Advisor Peter Crawford said that the better-than-expected regional performance was largely thanks to the effectiveness of the government's emergency economic support and less of a fall in tourism spending than initially feared. And as you know, Manawatu and Wanganui District, Manawatu in particular, has a lot going on, a lot of different income sources, a lot of different feathers to the bow of our economy. And so in April, Infometrics had predicted the pandemic could cause an 8% fall in New Zealand's gross domestic product, but it has been quite a bit less than that. So that's quite interesting there to know that Manawatu is doing well. Uh, The unemployment rate is fairly steady as well from this report uh, to the previous one in terms of Palmerston North. Just a couple of uh, follow-up stories here for you. The first one is... The air traffic control tower that we uh, featured on the show a number of weeks ago has been sold. So the article here from Stuff and Lifestyle says Wellington's old air traffic control tower, Arnold, is off the market. So this was a uh, a really impressive and interesting control tower which was actually on not on the airport land but was the old control tower at Wellington Airport. Sophia Healy from Airways New Zealand says there are mixed feelings about the sale of the air traffic control tower, which has watched over Wellington skies for 60 years. There were over 100,000 views from interested buyers, but it's officially off the market. So it's believed to be the only control tower with the residential and post address in the country, and it was sold by Tommy's. The selling price of the building was unknown and has not been disclosed, but it had an asking price of 895 uh, Tommy's real estate is donating the commission, commission earned to the New Wellington Children's Hospital, which is nice. So it has sold, it's gone. Uh, we'll have to watch the space to see uh, where that gets to. Rumours have it that I might be a little privy to is that the airport has purchased it, but uh, those are just rumours, so we'll have to find out about that later. 
And just down the road from there and around the corner a little bit, uh, Porirua becomes New Zealand's most expensive district to rent. And this one surprised me. It might be a statistical anomaly, but it makes a good headline. So if you're looking for a house in Porirua, be prepared to pay the highest average rent in the country. And for the first time, Porirua, which is just north of Wellington, it's the most expensive district to rent after rents climbed to a record 6.25 a week in September, according to the latest TradeMe Rental Price Index. TradeMe spokesman Logan Mudge said the weekly median rent in Porirua reached an all-time high after climbing 25% on last September and overtaking Wellington by $25 a week. So there we go, big changes there. And there's also been cha- big changes here in uh, Manawatu as well, around about a 17% change year on year in rental amounts. Now here's something from the uh, So Strange That It Must Be True file, and this was uh, recorded by stuff.co.nz. And this is not, it's, it's very vaguely housing related, so I thought I'd just throw it in here. So KFC released release, Fried chicken scented fire logs in the USA. <laughs> yes, KFC brings back its fried chicken scented fire logs. It is once again being made in partnership with EnviroLog, which is an environmentally conscious company based in Georgia. It's 100% recycled material and they can burn for up to three hours. And what's interesting about these, according to Walmart's description of the product, the fire log will make your home feel as warm as an extra crispy drumstick. So the KFC 11 Herbs and Spices Fire Log from Envirolog is designed to make your home smell like fried chicken and feel as warm as the extra crispy drumstick at the bottom of a KFC bucket of fried chicken. The fried chicken scented fire logs are actually a highly coveted holiday item and, and they have sold out in the last two years in a row. Customer demand and excitement are only expected to grow this year, according to Ross McCroy, president of Envirolog. Now that's weird, because every time I smell KFC, actually, my mouth starts watering. And even and I, I won't comment good or bad on, on how I feel about their food, but what I can say is that um, my mouth would be watering non-stop if I had one of those in my, in my lounge. Uh, a KFC uh, fried chicken scented fire log. So that was a little off topic. And we'll come back on uh, roughly to, on topic here to uh, something that we, we featured in our, uh, that we featured a number of times before, but just to follow up from uh, last week's show, last week's 100th episode, we talked about um, the properties that you can buy in parts of Europe for very cheap indeed. And sure enough, <laughs> within a day or so of mentioning that, there's another article in the paper Sicilian Town Auctions Off Homes for the Price of a Coke. So dilapidated homes in the Sicilian town of Salimi are being auctioned off at a starting price of just one euro, which is about $1.77. The only catch is you have to provide the local council details of how you plan to renovate it, pay a 3,000 euro deposit, which is refunded once the work is complete. So the homes were originally constructed in the 1600s, hundreds of years before many Kiwi homes with heritage protection were built, but were damaged in the quake of 1968. Thousands fled Salimi following the quake, and it's taken years for the city to legally acquire the homes and get them ready for auctions. All the buildings belong to the city council, which speeds up the sale and reduces red tape. Mayor Domenico Venuti told CNN. Before launching the scheme, we first had to recover the old parts of Salimi where the houses are located, upgrading infrastructures and services from roads to electric grids and sewage pipes. It was a long process. Quite amazing to recover from an earthquake of that scale. 
So the city was ready earlier this year, but then COVID-19 arrived, hitting Italy hard. And Sicily avoided the worst of it, but still has uh, quite a considerable number of cases. But there is then, uh, considering the median house price in New Zealand is currently 685000 um, in New Zealand and almost a million dollars in Auckland, uh, I guess uh, a doer-upper for the price of a can of Coke is probably not a bad thing. I guess just the travelling to get there is, is probably the first, uh, first thing there. Now... Now going to go into a little section that I call shocking landlords and poor tenants. So let's look at the shocking landlords and poor tenants from this week. Uh, this article here from Stuff Business, $4,190 compensation and damages for $1,000 a week, leaky rental property. Some landlords never earn it. It's unbelievable. So Hawke's Bay Company was ordered to pay exemplary damages to a desperate mother who rented a drafty, leaky ex-commercial building as a home and a bid to keep her family together. Janet Hainger told Tenancy Tribunal she only rented the $1,000 a week property in the small Hawke's Bay town of Waipukarao because she was at risk of having her children uplifted from her care for lack of ability to provide them with a suitable accommodation. So work and income negotiated the weekly rent. But the tribunal found the property did not meet all the health and safety standards set out in the Residential Tenancies Act and ordered the property company to pay tenants almost 4200 in compensations and damages. And that included $1,500 in exemplary damages. Remember, exemplary damages are our terminology for what uh, in America they call punitive damages. They're effective money, money paid by the landlord to the tenant for breaking the rules. But there was also $1,100 compensation for not being able to use one of the bedrooms because of water coming in. The bond centre was also asked to return the tenant's $4,000 bond. So what's the problem? Well, the Residential Tenancies Act requires landlords to provide properties in a reasonable state of, of repair and comply with healthy home standard. And this particular property, which was advertised as a six-bedroom, two-bathroom, two-kitchen home, leaked and had significant gaps around the door and window joinery. One of the bedrooms was effectively unusable because of the extent of the leaks. Uh, the adjudicator, or, or referee, I should say, adjudicator B. King, found. The exterior premises of the premises seems to have an adequate guttering system for the collection of rainwater from the roof and Miss Hanger's descriptions of the overflow of water from the gutters over the windows which then leaked into the premises seem to be consistent with the photographic evidence provided. So it just shows you you've really got to be careful. It's not just a matter of I guess using your space as a residential property. You've got to make sure it complies. It's really important. And here's a the second one, a $9,000 fine for appalling rental. Landlord says tenant got what she paid for. So these are incredible headlines. So the landlord of an Auckland rental property that has been labelled appalling says the tenant got what she paid for. A recently released tenancy tribunal decision shows Sammy Waitai was awarded $9,283.30 in compensation after a landlord was failed to keep a Teatatu South property to a reasonable standard. So Waitai's tenancy at the Flanshaw Road property began on March 7th, 2018. She lived at the two-bedroom, one-bathroom 1950s home managed by Shelter Realty with her children, including a 12-year-old son who has special needs. In 2019, the landlord, Kathleen Yin, increased the rent from 400 to 430. Waitai contacted the Kia Waitakere Trust for financial assistance and they sent a representative to the house and there were significant areas of the home that were not provided in a reasonable state of repair and included missing or broken windows in the sun porch, rotting wood, 
gutters missing, holes in the floor, cracks in the shower, cupboards needing replacing, wallpaper lifting, rubbish in the yard and non-secured fencing. That's unbelievable. The landlord said the house was worn and old but said it was at a habitable level and reaches the minimum standards, which I probably wouldn't agree with that, but that was nevertheless her position. The property manager uh, said that the house was in the lower quartile for rent in the area and that reflected the age and wear of it. Prowse said photos of the house showed very little had been done to it in 70 years, appearing to have original wallpaper, kitchen, bathroom and flooring. So quite incredible. Uh, in total, a, a, uh, over $10,000 was awarded by the uh, court for the landlord to pay uh, to the tenant. So unbelievable what some people try to do. Now here's one that uh, tenants should be aware of. This is something which uh, there's been um, numerous cases of this and it's a case of be very careful with knowing what's in your tenancy agreement and what's not. And here's the headline. So tenants, landlords get $12,500 after a tenant sublets their flat on Airbnb. So a man who secretly sublet an apartment in Auckland's swanky metropolis residences through Airbnb must pay $12,500 in compensation to his landlord. The Tenancy Tribunal ordered Sean Robin Kennedy to pay landlords Bernadine Harris, Raymond Miller and the Ray Miller Trust and trustees over $10,000 and also that the bond to have that paid as well. Now the compensation was for unpaid rent, missing or broken chattels and linen, cleaning costs, steam cleaning of upholstery, insurance excess for carpet replacement, exemplary damages because the tenant sublet the property using Airbnb without the landlord's permission. So the tenancy ended on April the 14th after the tenant gave notice but on April the 30th the landlord was told the building management suspected the apartment had been on Airbnb and Booking.com. The landlords asked the building managers to ask owners of the other apartments to contact them to see if they knew anyone. In response to them, another apartment owner, who had since sold the apartment, telephoned them and told them Mr Kennedy had rented out their apartment and they had found out they had rented it on Airbnb and Booking.com without their permission. So it's interesting to, to see what was going on there. The landlords had no idea what was happening, but he was subleasing. So the compensation, uh, the, the fact what I was referring to earlier, the contracts, is that the tenants were effectively subletting. And if your contract says you're not allowed to sublet, then you cannot do this. And so they were ordered to pay $8,360 as compensation as part of the overall award to the landlords. You see, possession and control over who takes possession of a property is a cornerstone of the landlord-tenant relationship, according to the adjudicator. He says it's in the public interest that when a tenant parts with possession of a property with intent and without the permission of the landlord that an award of exemplary damages is made, that reflects the seriousness of the situation. So be very careful when you are subletting on Airbnb because it can really come back to bite. So we're going to have a little break now, pop some music on. I've got something here for you. This is Dire Straits, Sultans of Swing. Inside, but you don't see it. 
You're back here on Property Matters. I'm Greg Watson and Property Matters here on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, Te Reo Inirangi on the Tangata or Manawatu. Nice to have your company. Uh, finally, probably in today's show, I thought I'd tell you about five of New Zealand's spookiest towns. We're talking ghosts, asylums and buried villages. So I thought I'd have a, this article appeared on stuff and about where people maybe used to live and no longer do. So... The first is Tarang, sorry, big fan, Tangarakal. Excuse the pronunciation, it's not my first language. So, this is the ghost town of Taranaki. It's so forgotten it's even bypassed by the Forgotten World Highway. This ghost town is at the end of the six kilometre Rakohua side road, and it feels like one of the most forsaken towns in the country. Because it used to be the second largest town in Taranaki with 12,000 residents, uh, but it was abandoned almost after night after work on the. Uh, overnight, I should say, after work on the Stratford to Tamaranui railway was completed. So in its heyday from the 20s to 37, the town was home to a school with more than 100 pupils and sports fields that supported nine teams. Life was far from easy, though. You'd have to spend 12 hours a day sawing down trees for railway tracks or hammering them in with a sledgehammer before retreating to a shack in the middle of nowhere. The sole surviving original building, if you get there, is a school. And while there are no shops or restaurants, it's not entirely deserted. The Bushlands Holiday Park features campsites and cabins in a native bush-fringed valley. So not surprisingly, one of the Holiday Park's major selling points is that it's definitely away from it all. Next one is Seacliff in Dunedin, and it was once the home to the sprawling Gothic-style Seacliff Lunatic Asylum, which got renamed Seacliff Mental Hospital in about 1905. It's a seaside village 28 kilometres north of central Dunedin and it's synonymous to many with suffering. It was built in 1884. The castle-like building once housed 500 patients and 50 staff. Uh, Janet Frame was a still a budding author when she was first in there in 1945 and she spent much of the next eight years from 1948 after her sister drowned uh, receiving electroconvulsive therapy and only narrowly escaping a prefrontal lobotomy. So other tragedies in the building uh, included a fire that swept through the wooden ward in 1942, resulting in the deaths of 37 of the 39 female patients locked inside. So all that remains of the hospital at Seacliff, which closed in 1973, are the foundations and the remnants of a garden tended to by former patients on the seaward slope. Apparently a nice place for a stroll, even though it's got a slightly grim history. We go to Waiuta on the west coast. It's one of the most famous ghost towns in a region that's full of them. And it's a heritage-listed former gold rush hub. It went into ruin after the mine shaft collapsed in 1951. It was deemed too costly to repair and the town's 600 residents fled, leaving Mother Nature to slowly reclaim what had been hers. 
So wandering past derelict buildings such as the old police station and barbershop, the overgrown Olympic swimming pool and the ruins of the snowy battery where quartz was once crushed to free gold, it's possible to envisage, if your powers of imagination are sharp, what life might have been when the town was host to or home to the region's richest gold mine. If you climb or drive up the hill to the Prohibition Mine and Mill site, you can stand over what was once New Zealand's deepest mine shaft, the last 300 of its 879 metres being below sea level. That's incredible. 879 metres. So that's uh, that, that one. Here's another one for you, the Te Wairua Buried Village, which is a village buried beneath the hot ash and mud when Mount Tarawera erupted in 1886. Te is often described as the New Zealand version of Pompeii. You can walk around the partially excavated site to gain an insight into how its Māori and European inhabitants lived before the violent eruption, which also destroyed the nearby pink and white terraces and claimed more than 150 lives. I don't know if you've been there. I haven't. I would like to go at some stage. So it's got a museum there and, and so forth. So finally... The last one, uh, largely abandoned, is Macetown, Otago. It looks like a, a good ghost story, according to the article. A long trek to a ghost town allows suspense to build, and the historic trail to this old gold rush town is hidden within high country tussock land near Arrowtown. And it's one of the best when it comes to spookiest. So following an old horse and dray road, the Arrow River, the four-wheel drive hiking mountain bike trail takes in derelict huts and old homestead, numerous river crossings, and in spring, plenty of bright pink and purple and yellow lupins. It was first settled in early 1860s after gold was discovered in the river. Macetown met its demise when the gold ladder discovered in the hills ran out. It's one of the best preserved gold fields in central Otago and it's home to a restored cottage, bakehouse and a four-storey homeward-bound stamper battery, the only all-known stamper battery in the region. There's also an old schoolhouse and housing sections with original fruit and shelter trees. So to avoid uh, starring in your own horror story, though, it's best to check the weather forecast and trail conditions before you go, as the river can be impassable after heavy rain and can all be obliterated under snow and ice in winter. So really, it's, uh, that's a little bit of an insight into five places where people used to live here on Property Matters, where now uh, you can visit and you can see the remnants of that. And so uh, that's the thing with COVID-19, I guess, at the moment, is p- plenty of people are travelling within the country. So I thought I'd just bring that one to you a bit. And just finishing on a slightly lighter note. Now, I know I went uh, to stay in a, in a haunted house, actually, down in Christchurch, the Rickerton uh, Racecourse Hotel. Uh, I think that was probably in the, within the last couple of years I popped down there, and that was one of the, one of the I guess, attractions to going to that property was to see if we could see anything. And unfortunately, um, I didn't have any particular ghostly experience on that occasion, but uh, I thought I'd bring to you these ghost towns and abandoned places just in case you had the urge or felt the need to go a little bit off track and to see how things used to be. A number of those five places I mentioned have actually got associated uh, information sheets and and tourism uh, brochures, etc. That's all we've got time on for today. I've uh, digressed away a little from the usual property news, etc. But it's been lovely having your company here on Property Matters. I'm Greg Watson, and I look forward to catching up with you in a week's time. You can find this here, always on NPR or where all good blogs are here. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. 
For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate.